Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in Sultry, Savannah, this is Obscure Season 3, Wuthering Heights. I am your friend, your host, your ear lover, literary mansplainer-in-chief and Georgianologist Michael Ian Black. Having participated in uh, a new book club, it wasn't a book club that I'm a member of, but was invited to lead a book club discussion of my book, a better man this past Sunday morn here in Sultry, Savannah, Georgia. And uh, boy, that's an ambitious book club. They meet at 7.30 in the morning on a Sunday, and then they run around for half an hour. They take a jog or a, or a fast walk for half an hour. And then at 8, when the Foxy Loxy Cafe opens up, they convene there at the coffee shop and order their caffeinated beverages and associ- associated brioche and then uh, have a conversation about a book. Now listen, those of you who are a part of our book club know that I will never require any physical exertion on your part. Those who are not a member of our book club here just know that you will never be required to break a sweat, ask questions, or even really read the book, you know? There very little is required of you in my book club. Uh, I wouldn't ask you to do anything that I wouldn't do myself, and you can be sure I would not be running around for half an hour pre-book club. Uh, now, look, that's not saying that there won't be some brioche requirement in the future. There very well may be. It would be hard to go wrong with a brioche requirement, but it hasn't happened yet, and I think it's probably unlikely to happen. Uh, but we do have a good time in our book clubs freewheeling though they may be, as Steve Huff, beloved book club member, described them. 
we are uh, in the book, you know, where I feel like we're solidly in it now, you know, we're just in the, in the meat and marrow of the thing, because we've got a little bit of a love triangle. Well, not really. I guess it's not quite a love triangle, but it's a love, uh, it's a love num, love num drum that Catherine is experiencing. But here's a question, a literary question about this book. So, so much of it to this point it has been narrated by Mrs. Dean, the servant, the housekeeper, uh, very little of it narrated by Lockwood and Lockwood's participation in the story has been that of observer, you know, spectator, interloper. So my question is, why is Mrs. Dean not the narrator of this story? It's, it really seems like she should be. It seems like she should be the one who is committing her memories to paper or some such thing. But she has observed this family now for over a generation. It seems like she should be the one telling the story, and it's curious to me why she is not. Why we need the character of Lockwood at all. Now, perhaps that will become clearer as the book progresses but uh, that just occurred to me today because it just seems like she's doing all the heavy lifting in this book. And man, she's not going to get the credit for being the narrator, is she? I mean, just another overlooked woman in literature. Let us set aside the fact that the book was written by a woman, uh, uh, the brave American woman, Emily Bronte, and instead concentrate on my observation. When last we met... Uh, this big storm had befallen Wuthering Heights, a storm of the sky and a storm of the soul. Everybody cowering there in the house, save Heathcliff, who has run away from home. Nobody knows where he is, but Kathy has gone out to look for him, or at least she's been coming back and forth into the storm and into the house and into the storm and into the house and till, until she got thoroughly drenched, as Mrs. Dean says, for her obstinacy in refusing to take shelter and standing bonnetless and shawless to catch as much water as she could with her hair and clothes. That's where we left it last. And let us pick it up now in chapter, I think we're in nine. Let's just double check. Chapter nine, Wuthering Heights. She came in and lay down on the settle, all soaked as she was, turning her face to the back and putting her hands before it. Well, miss, I exclaimed, touching her shoulder, you're not bent on getting your death, are you? Do you know what o'clock it is? Half past twelve. Come, come to bed. There's no use waiting longer on that foolish boy. He'll be gone to Gimmerton, and he'll stay there now. He guesses we shouldn't wake for him till this late hour. And uh, there's a footnote after the word wake. He guesses we shouldn't wake for him till this late hour. It just seems like that would mean to stay awake. Yeah, and then I just checked it out there in the footnotes, and it says wake or wait up. Not sure we needed a footnote for that, but in our efforts to be as thorough as possible, I do not regret looking it up. At least he guesses that only Mr. Hindley would be up, and he'd rather avoid having the door opened by the master. Nay, nay, oh, this is Joseph. <clears throat> nay, nay, he's known at Gimmerton, said Joseph. Oars never wonder, but he's at the bottom of a bug hoyle. 
This visitation won't for naught, and I would have you to look at, miss. You might be next. Thank heaven for all. All works together for good. Take him as is chosen, and pick out through the ribbage. <laughs> God, I hate Joseph. You know what the scripture says. So he, he says he's at the bottom of a bug hole, but I don't know what a bug hole is. No, no, he's not. A, I'm reading now. He's not at Gimmerton. I wouldn't wonder if he weren't at the bottom oh, of a bog hole. This visitation wasn't for nothing, and I would have you look out, miss. You might be the next one. Thank heaven for everything. Everything works together for the good of those who are chosen and picked out from among the rubbish. You know what the scripture says. So uh, he's saying he's dead. You know, Joseph is saying he's dead. And no doubt he relishes the thought of Heathcliff lying face down there in a bog hole, his face in the mud, swallowed up by the waters, um, already being picked apart by the, by the plankton. You know, those meat-eating plankton. And he began quoting several texts, referring us to the chapter and verses where we might find them. I, having vainly begged the willful girl to rise and remove her wet things, left him preaching and her shivering, and betook myself to bed with little Hareton, who slept as fast as if everyone had been sleeping round him. I heard Joseph read on a while afterwards, then I distinguished his slow step on the ladder, and then I dropped asleep. Coming down somewhat later than usual, I saw, by the sunbeams piercing the chinks of the shutters, Miss Catherine still seated near the fireplace. The house door was ajar, too. Light entered from its unclosed windows. Hindley had come out and stood on the kitchen hearth, haggard and drowsy. "'What ails you, Cathy?' he was saying when I entered. "'You look as dismal as a drowned whelp. "'Why are you so damp and pale, child?' "'I've been wet,' she answered reluctantly, "'and I'm cold, that's all.' "'Oh, she is naughty,' I cried, "'perceiving the master to be tolerably sober. "'She got steeped in the shower of yesterday evening, "'and there she has sat the night through, "'and I couldn't prevail on her to stir.' "'Mr. Earnshaw stared at us in surprise.' The night through, he repeated. What kept her up? Not fear of the thunder, surely. That was over hours since. Neither of us wished to mention Heathcliff's absence as long as we could conceal it. So I replied I didn't know how she took it into her head to sit up, and she said nothing. The morning was fresh and cool. I threw back the lattice and presently filled the room filled with sweet scents from the garden. But Catherine called peevishly to me. Ellen shut the window. I'm starving, and her teeth chattered as she shrunk closer to the almost extinguished embers. She's ill, said Hindley, taking her wrist. I suppose that's the reason she would not go to bed. Damn it! I don't want to be troubled with more sickness here. What took you into the rain? Running after to lads as usual, croaked Joseph, catching an opportunity from our hesitation to thrust in his evil tongue. If I were ya, maister... I just slammed the boards and their faces all on em, gentle and simple. Never a day ought year off, but you caught a linton come sneaking hither. On Miss Nellie's shoes a fine lass. Shoes sits watching for you at the kitchen, and as you're in at one door, he's at other. And then, where grand lady goes a-courting off her side. 
It's bonny behavior lurking among the fields after twelve at night with hot file flay some devil of a gypsy Heathcliff. They think I'm blind, but oh none, not o' her sort. I seed young Linton both coming and going, and I see yo directing his discourse to me. You're good for naught, slatinly witch. Nip up and bolt into the house. To minute you heard to Meister's horse fit clatter up to road. So he's, Joseph's just being a dick. Joseph's just telling on everybody. In one door comes Linton and another comes Heathcliff and Catherine's hussying after Linton and hussying after Heathcliff. And there's, there's, uh, there's Miss Dean allowing this terrible behavior, the slatinly witch and all of it going under Hinton's nose, you know, and nobody's looking and poor Joseph just there trying to keep everything in order, you know, trying to keep the Lord right in this house. And does anybody listen to Joseph? No, nobody listens to Joseph. Poor thing. Poor, poor thing. Silence, eavesdropper, cried Catherine. None of your insolence before me. Edgar Linton came yesterday by chance, Hindley, and it was I who told him to be off, because I knew you would not like to have met him as you were. You lie, Cathy, no doubt, answered her brother, and you are a confounded simpleton, but never mind Linton at present. Tell me, were you not with Heathcliff last night? Speak the truth now. You need not be afraid of harming him, though I hate him as much as ever. He did me a good turn a short time since. That will make my conscience tender of breaking his neck. To prevent it, I shall send him about his business this very morning. And after he's gone, I'd advise you all to look sharp. I shall have only the more humor for you. So, <laughs> he did me a good turn. I mean, that's a very subtle way of saying he caught my child after I let him fall from the second story banister. It's, uh, you know, he did him better than a good turn. He kept him from killing his son. That's more than a good turn. And I'm not sure why you hate him as much as ever after that. I understand that you two have never gotten along. I understand that he displaced his, uh, your father's love. But for God's sakes, man, you're the head of the household. He saved your son. Give the kid a freaking break, would you not? These are terrible people. And we all agree, these are terrible, terrible people, pretty much one and all. Even Heathcliff, who I think, you know, we have some sympathy for because we understand he's been beaten about, literally and metaphorically, since a very young age and brought to this house and treated like scum. And, you know, there's something, there's something, uh, you know, Oliver Twisty about him. But at the same time, he's more Fagin than Oliver Twist, is he not? I mean, he's, he's a schemer. I think that's fair to say. And he certainly doesn't endear himself to anybody the way poor Oliver does when he holds out his bowl and says, please, sir, may I have some more? You know, it's just not as, it's not as endearing. Uh, he's, he's a scallywag, you know, as much as any of them. Just a scallywag. And we understand that all the good humor and good temper has been beaten out of him at this point. But even so, there is something dark in the heart of Heathcliff and Though we may look for redemption in him, it's hard to find. He is the bad boy, and heaven knows how attractive the bad boy is. Quiet now, the dog is barking. Heaven knows how attractive the bad boy is to all manner of young lasses. But in the end, 
you know, the bad boy still has to be redeemed. And when he is not, at least, at least as a father now at this point in my life, I say to hell with him. All right, let's take a little break, see what the dogs are barking at. And uh, we'll be back in a moment here on Obscure. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Back in Obscure, of course, I could find nothing. I don't know what the dogs are barking at. They, you know, they're just the worst. Jack-Jack didn't bark like this. Jack-Jack was not the barker that these guys are. You know, and for that, he is missed. All right, so uh, back to the book. You know, everybody's calling each other a liar. Joseph's telling tales and trying to court favor with the master and blah, blah, blah. It's terrible. But let's see how it continues. Hindley has just said, you know, you're a liar and you're a confounded simpleton. And you were with Heathcliff last night, weren't you? And, and, and she says, I never saw Heathcliff last night, answered Catherine, beginning to sob bitterly. And if you do turn him out of doors, I'll go with him. But perhaps you'll never have an opportunity. Perhaps he's gone. Here she burst into uncontrollable grief, and the remainder of her words were inarticulate. Hindley lavished on her a torrent of scornful abuse and bade her get to her room immediately or she shouldn't cry for nothing. I obliged her to obey, and I shall never forget what a scene she acted when we reached her chamber. It terrified me. I thought she was going mad, and I begged Joseph to run for the doctor. It proved the commencement of delirium. Mr. Kenneth, as soon as he saw her, pronounced her dangerously ill. She had a fever. uh, She was out in the rain. She's going to die. Poor thing is going to die. And, uh, and we'll be glad for it. Well, uh, there it is. You know, it's going to move the story along. Catherine's going to die and we'll be glad for it. Although, uh, last night, Hindley said that he killed Mr. Kenneth, but apparently Kenneth is, is in fine fettle because he showed up to give the diagnosis. So, in his drunken ravings, I guess he, he was, he was uh, maybe just a little bit off. 
and a little bit less precise than he might have been in his words, because here's Kenneth happily alive and well, but she has a fever. He bled her, and he told me to let her live on whey and water gruel, and take care she did not throw herself downstairs or out of the window. Well, that's very good medical advice, Mr. Kenneth. Do yourself a favor. Take some Pedialyte and some oyster crackers, and try not to throw yourself down the stairs or out of a window. That'll be $250, please. And then he left, for he had enough to do in the parish, where two or three miles was the ordinary distance between cottage and cottage. Though I cannot say I made a gentle nurse, and Joseph and the master were no better, and though our patient was as wearisome and headstrong as a patient could be, she weathered it through. Well, that's disappointing. Very disappointing. I mean, uh, yeah, I was hoping to just get Catherine, shuffle her off this mortal coil right at this very moment. But no, maybe she's waiting for Heathcliff to return before she gives up the ghost. Who knows? All right, well, let's see. Old Mrs. Linton paid us several visits, to be sure, and set things to rights, and scolded and ordered us all. And when Catherine was convalescent, she insisted on conveying her to Thrushcross Grange, for which deliverance we were very grateful. But the poor dame had reason to repent of her kindness. She and her husband both took the fever and died within a few days of each other. <laughs> well, yeah, then she would have reason to repent of her kindness. Well, what, is, what does that mean? They both took the fever. Uh, she shouldn't be contagious. She was out in the rain. She got herself a little pneumonia or whatever it was. I mean, that's not the kind of thing that's contagious. Is this just poor medical making by Emily Bronte? Is this just ignorance? I don't know what this is, but uh, sh uh, surely Catherine did not give them any such disease. So they're dead, all right? And, and okay, so be it. And uh, hard to say what the young Linton, Edgar Linton, hard to say how he's going to react to that. I mean, if Catherine shows up there, within a few days the parents die of the same fever that she had, it seems like that might cool things off a little bit between them. But then again, she punched him, and that didn't seem to matter any. He's not made of sturdy stuff. Let's just be honest, this Edgar Linton, this weaselly little Edgar Linton, not made of sturdy stuff. Our lady returned to us, saucier and more passionate and haughtier than ever. Heathcliff had never been heard of since the evening of the thunderstorm, and one day I had the misfortune when she provoked me exceedingly to lay the blame of his disappearance on her, where indeed it belonged, as she well knew. From that period, for several months, she ceased to hold any communication with me, save in the relation of a mere servant. Joseph fell under a ban also. He would speak his mind, and lecture her all the same, as if she were a little girl, and she esteemed herself a woman, and our mistress, and thought that her recent illness gave her a claim to be treated with consideration. Then the doctor had said that she would not bear crossing much. She ought to have her own way, and it was nothing less than murder in her eyes for anyone to presume to stand up and contradict her. I mean, this is just a tiresome household, isn't it? They're just awful. Each one, you know, worse than the next. 
The only one who's at all tolerable is Mrs. Dean, but she's the one telling the story. So, sure, of course, she's going to paint herself in the best light. She probably thinks she's the hero of the goddamn thing. But, you know, Catherine almost dies. Heathcliff is gone. Catherine comes back, won't talk to anybody. Mrs. Dean says, well, it's your fault he's gone, which is a bitchy thing to say. And not entirely accurate, although certainly somewhat accurate. And the fact of the matter is, like, Heathcliff only heard the first part of what she said, which is she wasn't going to marry him, but she didn't hear the second part, which is basically that she is, is in love with him and will always be in love with him. He is more her than she is. But they're all at each other's throats, of course, and Miss Catherine running around like she owns the place because, in fact, she kind of does. And because the doctor had said, well, she's got to have her way, you know, because she, she could die if she doesn't. From Mr. Earnshaw and his companions, she kept aloof and tutored by Kenneth and serious threats of a fit that often attended her rages, her brother allowed her whatever she pleased to demand, and generally avoided aggravating her fiery temper. He was rather too indulgent in humoring her caprices, not from affection, but from pride. He wished earnestly to sing, see her bring honor to the family by an alliance with the Lintons, and as long as she let him alone, she might trample us like slaves for aught he cared. Edgar Linton, as multitudes have been before and will be after him, was infatuated, and believed himself the happiest man alive on the day he led her to Gimmerton Chapel, three years subsequent to his father's death. Okay, so wait, hold on. Three years? Three years? So let's just go back for a second. She and her husband both took the fever and died within a few days of each other when she's there at Thrush Cross Grange recuperating. And then it takes three years for them to, to then marry? Uh, I guess so. All right. So, much against my inclination, I was persuaded to leave Wuthering Heights and accompany her here. So now they're at Thrush Cross Grange, where Lockwood is staying. That's how that house became in the position of the Earnshaws. Uh, and it's all making sense. Little Hareton was nearly five years old, and I had just begun to teach him his letters. We made a sad parting, but Catherine's tears were more powerful than ours. When I refused to go, and when she found her entreaties did not move me, she went lamenting to her husband and brother. The former offered me munificent wages. The latter ordered me to pack up. He wanted no women in the house, he said, now that there was no mistress. And as to Hareton, the curate should take him in hand by and by. And so I had but one choice left, to do as I was ordered. I told the master he got rid of all decent people only to run a ruin a little faster. I, that's a bitchy thing to say. I kissed Hareton goodbye, and since then he has been a stranger. And it's queer to think it but I've no doubt he has completely forgotten all about Ellen Dean, and that he was ever more than all the world to her, and she to him. So, does that bring us up to present day? Does it bring us present day? Are we then, do we, are we all caught up, sort of? I mean, we don't know how she died or what have you, but let us see. Oh, oh, I, I just looked ahead. There's only a paragraph left in the chapter. So we'll just read this little paragraph and then we'll be done with chapter nine. Oh, it's exciting when we finish a chapter, isn't it? 
At this point of the housekeeper's story, she chanced to glance towards the timepiece over the chimney and was in amazement on seeing the minute hand measure half past one. She would not hear of staying a second longer. In truth, I felt rather disposed to, to defer the sequel of her narrative myself. And now that she has vanished to her rest and I have meditated for another hour or two, I shall summon courage to go also in spite of aching laziness of head and limbs. End of chapter 9. All right, well, we're not quite caught up, but we, a lot of the places have been assembled on the chessboard. We sort of know where everybody stands, where everybody is. We kind of know everything that we need to know. Of course, there's we don't we I mean we don't know how we we have yet to see Heathcliff's return, how he assumed control of the house. We don't know any of this, but we do understand so much more than we did a month ago when <laughs> Mrs. Dean began recounting this tragic, tragic tale. Uh, well, we'll leave it there. Obviously, the the the, the chapter has ended. We're going to start chapter 10 next time out, and what a chapter it promises to be. Maybe, maybe we'll, maybe we'll uh, spend some more time with Lockwood. That would be good. Reacquaint ourselves with him and, uh, and his stuff. We'll see, you know, we'll see again the ghostly works of Catherine, I hope. You know, we started off with the, with the specter of Catherine haunting Lockwood as he climbed into his futon cabinet. And uh, I would like to get reacquainted with her. I want, I want her to be more present. I, you know, I want the ghost of Catherine to show up in, in some spectral form, you know, uh, writing red rum on the walls or something, doing something scary, rattling chains around. Don't know if we'll get that. I suspect not. I don't think this is quite a ghost story, although... Of course it is, because whether or not she appears in any physical form, the ghost of Catherine Earnshaw, or Linton Nay Earnshaw, hangs over Wuthering Heights just as surely as a cloud on the moors. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's all good, you know? All good, folks. I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying you. I enjoyed the book club. I did not enjoy getting up at 8 o'clock, you know. Although, one thing that I did that I've been doing or just, just started doing over the past week that you may say, oh, that's that doesn't seem very interesting at all, Michael, but it's interesting to me because it's not something I've ever done. Started ordering iced coffee. And I don't drink coffee. But maybe I'll start. Maybe I'll start drinking coffee. That could be a whole new development in my life. My God, at age 50, taking on a new beverage. I mean, you've already heard how I'm sipping on that Diet Coke. Now, part of it is just that I'm always fatigued, you know, and I'm always looking for ways to just be a little bit more energetic. There could just be something wrong with me physically, you know, in the endocrine system or something. I don't know, but um, yeah. Drinking a little iced coffee. Might, might, might leave the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library and take myself a walk over to the coffee shop and get a, get a nice coffee right now. Why wouldn't I? Why wouldn't I? We have this freedom still in America. 
Despite the fact that our democracy is hanging on by a thread, a fella can still walk across the park and get himself an iced coffee if he so chooses. And maybe I will here on this sultry Savannah afternoon. Um, yeah, I think I'll just do that. I'm going to put on some sneakers and go. Just as soon as I wrap up here, let us join ourselves again in one week's time on another caffeinated episode of Obscure. But until then, I wish you adieu. This season of Obscure is produced by me, Michael Ian Black, and Robin Lynn. Our theme music is by Craig Wedrin. If you listen and like the show, please help us out with a rating and a review. We want to be obscure, but not that obscure. It's an easy way to support the show. Thanks. <laughs>